0: Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Patricia Richmond. Patricia,
1: thank you for being here. Thank you so much for
0: having me today. Patricia Richmond is the National Sentencing Resource Council for Federal, Public, and Community Defenders. And Patricia is joining us today to talk about the scheduling of fentanyl analogs. It's not a topic I know much about, so let's jump right into the background, and we'll let Patricia lead us in that. So Patricia, let's start by providing our listeners with some basic understanding of this.
1: What is a fentanyl analog? Thanks, Emily. I think that we see a lot of references in the news today to fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. So it's really important to start by defining exactly what that is. The dictionary definition of analog just means something that is similar to something else. And how that's used in criminal law is when the government prosecutes a substance and says that it's similar to a controlled substance, a Schedule One or Schedule Two substance, that has the same potential for abuse and should be subject to the same penalties. But one thing that's important to know about is that to see if a substance is really similar to something else in a scientifically accurate manner, you've got to look at two things. You've got to look at first, it's chemical structure. And then second, you have to look at the way it acts in the human body. Sometimes two substances can look chemically very similar. So if you drew out a diagram of its chemical structure, they would look almost to match except perhaps some slight tweaks around the edges. But you might find that when that substance was ingested in the human body, it acts very differently. So an example that I could give you about that would be morphine and naloxone. Narcan. Morphine is a really potent narcotic that's been around for a long time and lots of people are familiar with it. But few people know that naloxone, which is an antidote for drug overdoses, is actually an analog of morphine. If you put the chemical structures of morphine and naloxone right next to each other on a page, they look really similar. But in the human body, they act completely different. Morphine is an opioid effect. It's an agonist and naloxone is an antagonist or an antidote. And the reason that I'm noting the importance of looking at chemical structure and pharmacological activity is because even if something is technically a fentanyl analog, that doesn't always mean that it is as harmful to the human body or has the same potential for abuse as fentanyl itself.
0: Okay, thank you. So you mentioned scheduling. It's something we've talked about on the podcast a while ago, but making sure all our listeners know what we're talking about, what does schedule of a drug refer to and what has the scheduling of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs been in the past?
1: So the Controlled Substances Act, which was a law Congress passed back in the 70s, developed this scheme for how to regulate drugs. And the structure that it adopted was that substances that had some potential to be harmful could be regulated by sort of shared decision-making between the attorney general, the enforcement side, and our science and medical communities. And those are our public health, HHS, FDA side. And so that law established a schedule of substances. And essentially, where a substance is on a schedule is dictated by what its potential for abuse is and whether it has any medical benefit. Substances that are placed on schedule one are considered to have no medical benefit and extremely high potential for abuse. Substances that are placed on schedule two are considered to have a very high potential for abuse, but to have some medical benefit. And typically, the way that those decisions are made is through that joint collaboration between the attorney general and our health and medical communities. So fentanyl has been controlled for a really long time, and I'm talking about pharmaceutical fentanyl. Pharmaceutical fentanyl is something that is routinely administered in medical care as a pain relief. It's a really important medical tool. It's a Schedule II substance. So it does have a potential for abuse and misuse and illicit fentanyl, which is fentanyl that is sold outside of sort of the medical setting and is used recreationally. You know, it's not used for that medical benefit, but nevertheless, it has that medical benefit. Now, fentanyl analogs have not been uniformly controlled as a class in the past. So remember before I was mentioning that This fentanyl analog concept is really broad. We don't know how many substances that are similar to fentanyl analogs there actually are. And so for many years, the DEA was controlling fentanyl analogs on a substance-by-substance basis. Now, the DEA and the Attorney General have the ability to do this. They have the power to temporarily schedule substances if they make a quick finding of some of the specific factors under the Controlled Substance Act. And so they went one by one, and I think they have listed around 27 or so fentanyl analogs and they classified those as schedule one. Now, in addition to that, the attorney general has long had the ability to also prosecute new fentanyl analogs that haven't been actually placed on the schedule under a tool called, the Controlled Substances Analog Act. And under the Controlled Substances Analog Act, the government can prosecute people who sell new substances that haven't yet been scheduled, although they have to meet some additional burdens of proof in order to do so. The reason that they have to meet those additional burdens of proof is of course, none of those other checks that customarily exist to make sure that the science and medical community has confirmed sort of an enforcement finding of a drug's potential for abuse exist when it's a new substance that's being brought before a court. So that has been the approach up until 2018. Now in 2018, that is when the DEA issued a regulation attempting to place an entire class, an entire group of fentanyl-related substances onto Schedule One rather than listing those substances individually or one by one, this time they listed five chemical structures. And they said if fentanyl structure had been modified in one of those five ways, it would be counted as a schedule one drug. Now, of course, they don't know how many substances are even in that group of fentanyl related substances, that's potentially thousands. And it's certain that there's going to be an extremely wide range of potency among those substances. But nevertheless, they just sort of moved all of those onto Schedule 1 as a whole.
0: All right. Thank you, Patricia. If I'm tracking what I know about the situation right, this was an emergency scheduling authority that you referred to in 2018, correct? Yes. Okay. And so I've actually heard this described as unprecedented and... I'm curious to know what your thoughts on the emergency scheduling of 2018, what would make it unprecedented or what, what are your thoughts on this decision?
1: Well, it was unprecedented because it moved an entire class of substances onto schedule one. That was the first part of it. That was really unusual. And if you look at the CSA, it does not necessarily seem to reflect that DEA has the authority to move an entire group of substances on to schedule one. Now, DEA can move substances, as I mentioned before, one by one onto schedule one. And usually how that works is they make a quick three factor finding, but then HHS and the FDA come behind and they examine that substance. When they confirm that it has a high potential for abuse, they confirm that it doesn't have a medical benefit. But here, HHS and FDA were never asked to do that work. So what happens in the ordinary course is DEA temporarily schedules a substance, a single substance, then there's a two to three year period, where HHS and the FDA do their scientific analysis of that substance. And if they agree with DEA, then that's it. At the end of that period, that substance is scheduled. But here, they never asked HHS and FDA to do that work. And I'm not sure why. It may be because as HHS testified that they didn't think, and by they, I mean, HHS didn't think it was scientifically possible to assess the potential for abuse or potential medical benefit of an undefined class of substances which exist now and in the future. So those are all factors that contribute to being called unprecedented. And the fact that they didn't ask for the scientific community to confirm that means that they had to instead come to Congress and ask for them to make that control permanent. And that's a problem because without the scientific community performing their customary role of evaluating whether substances should be in or out schedule one. That means that a broad set of compounds, including substances that could become potentially new vaccines or treatments against opioid misuse and overdose could have been improperly classified and that has serious implications, both for criminal justice and for research.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about those implications and potential impact. You know, I think for myself, I imagine that for some of our listeners, you know, the initial reaction to fentanyl is the association of, oh, I remember reading about fentanyl, and I still continue to read about fentanyl in the news. It's scary. It's killing people. You're making the distinction here. There is a difference between fentanyl, the illicit drug, and fentanyl analog, you know, for me, I just, I imagine that part of this emergency scheduling was in response to what seemed like sort of an outbreak potentially. And maybe I'm not connecting the right dots here and feel free to disagree with me, but you know, as we've had that in consideration and I'm sure that there'll be people listening that think, well, I am worried about that place of that drug out in society and the danger it poses. And you're making this distinction, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that, that it's an incorrect distinction. I'm trying to just reinforce the distinction about fentanyl analog and its potential use and you know how this would get in the way of that. I'm interested to hear more about your thoughts on maybe those things, but also let's dig into that potential impact of moving the drug into Schedule 1 and what it might mean for criminal justice especially when we consider things like racially disparate impacts or others. So that was a lot that I just put on you, but would you elaborate on your thoughts on all of that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm going to take a stab first at sort of the science and research side with the huge caveat that I am not a scientist and I'm not a pharmacological researcher. Sure. But I have friends now who are, <laughs> who have been looking at the impacts of class-wide scheduling for a long time. And so there's a neurobiologist from Columbia University. Her name is Dr. Sandra Comer. And she has examined the unintended consequences of class-wide scheduling on research. What happens when you say that an unknown number of substances, some which are likely, no doubt, very harmful, but some which may be absolutely inert and have no effect at all are suddenly moved on to schedule one. And what she's explained is that that can really chill scientific research and study. And that's a big deal when it comes to fentanyl analogs, because it's possible that the keys to treatment for uh, addiction disorders and for overdose is going to be found in the research of fentanyl analog substances. In other words, a substance might be out there that like naloxone is a structurally similar to fentanyl, but when it gets into the human body, what it actually does is act as an antidote. So she's laid out all of the research implications of that because once a substance is placed into schedule one, it becomes a lot harder to research. It's more expensive. There are more regulations to wade through a lot of the big pharmacological companies are a lot more hesitant to engage in research of Schedule One substances than they are of substances on the lower schedule. And this is an issue you've probably you know, thought about in terms of marijuana, where it comes up a lot. A lot of those same issues come to bear when it comes to Schedule One classification of substances. So that's the research side. Is this gonna hurt public health? by keeping scientists from doing life-saving research and finding substances because of its overbreadth. So, you know, the flip side of that is sort of criminal justice and public safety considerations, right? So someone might say to me, sure, Patricia, there might be this impact on research, but, you know, this is gonna keep harmful substances off the streets, right? It's gonna stop overdose deaths. And that's been the argument in support of this class-wide scheduling. The argument has been that it will reduce the number of new fentanyl analogs in the country and that we'll see a decline in overdose deaths. There's not factual support for that argument. The rate of overdose deaths have just continued to rise during the three years that the fentanyl analog class-wide scheduling has been in effect. And the amount of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs coming into the country has also increased Now, in fairness, there has been a drop in certain types of encounters with new fentanyl analogs in the field, but the GAO examined that drop and they could not determine a causal connection, whether a causal connection existed between that and class-wide scheduling because of just a lot of other factors going on. So we're not even sure that it's doing the thing that it's supposed to do or that it will continue to do that. And unfortunately, we have a really long timeline of evidence that drug controls don't decrease the supply of harmful things. Methamphetamine has been illegal, I think, since the 60s, a Schedule I substance. It's coming into the country in quantities higher than before and in a form that's purer than ever before. And so these sort of control approaches, domestic control approaches, have really been shown not to work and doing what we want them to do, which are to decrease overdose deaths. Now I want to talk about, you know, I talked a little about public health and I talked a little bit about research and now I want to talk about Mm -hmm. what it means when something is treated as a fentanyl analog in a criminal prosecution. Mm -hmm. So fentanyl analogs are subject to some of the harshest mandatory minimums on the books a substance containing any detectable amount of 10 grams. So if you have 10 grams of something and there's any trace amount of a fentanyl analog in there, that's going to trigger a five-year mandatory minimum. If you have a substance that has 10 grams with any detectable amount of a fentanyl analog, that triggers 10 years. The quantities for fentanyl, the substance I began talking about at the beginning fentanyl itself 40 grams. Any trace amount of fentanyl in that triggers five years. So the penalties for fentanyl analogs are about four times more severe than those for fentanyl. And so what are we seeing in terms of fentanyl analog prosecutions overall in the field? Well, we're seeing a massive uptick in those prosecutions. And what we are seeing even more is the treatment of fentanyl and its analogs in these cases, almost as a sentencing enhancement. So most of these cases are polydrug drug cases. So it's rare to find a case where the government is prosecuting somebody for just a fentanyl analog. Usually what you have is a case where there are multiple substances, heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, fentanyl analog involved. And folks in the field who are on the front lines of defending these cases would tell you that they're starting to see fentanyl and its analogs pop up in everything. And so once you have that substance, all of a sudden a case maybe that would just, if it were just heroin, carry no mandatory minimums at all, skyrockets into a case where there are very severe mandatory minimum penalties brought to bear. We've seen an over 5,000% increase in fentanyl analog prosecutions since 2015. And the majority of those have involved mandatory minimums. And most of those cases involve individuals who are Black or Brown. They are 68% being charged against individuals who are either Black or Hispanic. So we're seeing a real repeat of what we saw play out in the war on drugs, where communities of color bear the disproportionate brunt of these prosecutions. Now, people might say, well, it's good that we're prosecuting people because we've got to keep this stuff from coming into the country. But the problem is, is that's not who they're prosecuting. The majority of individuals who are prosecuted for these substances are street level or minor participants in drug trafficking. And we know, and we've seen over and over again, that these individuals are replaced very quickly and that that does nothing to cause a decrease in supply. I'm not aware of a single prosecution that's taken place under the class-wide scheduling that's been against a so-called kingpin or an importer to date. So I'm
0: curious to know, you know, we talk about how there's not enough evidence to support that this is making the sort of impact that lawmakers are hoping that it will make to curb the harmful impacts on society of deaths and the flow of these drugs in trafficking situations and preventing overdose. Are there alternatives to prosecuting these as schedule one that advocates are putting forward? Is there Any other sort of recommendations to try and address these public health
1: concerns? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think the the overriding message is let's take the lesson from the past and let's turn away from an enforcement first approach to drug control problems. And so there are a lot of proposals out there for public health oriented approaches that look to treatment and community support rather than enforcement. And that's so important because when you begin to get, you know, test strips out there and clinics for people to receive appropriate treatment and make that widely available, when you start to take measures to destigmatize drug use, right? Maybe you're not afraid to pick up the phone and call the ambulance when somebody you're using with begins to overdose. Right now, Um, There's an approach in a lot of jurisdictions where they treat every drug overdose death as a crime scene. What that does is it really disincentivizes folks from reaching out for help. So there are a lot of public health oriented proposals out there. There's the Stop Fentanyl Act, which is a bill that's been introduced in the House, that's just a whole package of public health-based interventions that really focus on moving us away from enforcement. One thing to remember is that the drug laws of the 80s and 90s contained a lot of money and funding for substance abuse treatment. They contained a lot of resources for that. But the thing is, is that enforcement always drowns everything out right? I think we need to move away from viewing enforcement as a useful tool to reduce the amount of drugs in our country. We have no evidence that that works. We only have evidence that it doesn't work.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Yeah, it's certainly a complex issue. So thank you for putting forward some of these other ideas for our listeners to consider as well as they try and track the issue so let's talk about where it stands today or not literally today <laughs> but I believe there was a recent hearing which included the White House on the topic of the 2018 class-wide scheduling of fentanyl analogs the schedule on drugs so
1: why is this happening now where does this stand now following that So there's been a tremendous amount of activity this week among civil rights, criminal justice groups and members of Congress to weigh in on this issue. Senators Booker, Warren, Markey, White House and Hirono wrote a letter to President Biden asking him to support the expiration of the class-wide scheduling. And there was a similar letter led by Chairman Nadler in the house and he was joined by several offices. This week, we'll see what comes to the Senate floor and how folks vote. If there is an extension, it will likely be short. And this issue is going to become teed up again at some point in the near future. So it's going to continue to move and be of interest to the community.
0: Great. Well, we will look out for that outcome to see how this plays out. So thank you for helping us understand the issue that's being debated right now and being determined right now. Patricia, one last question. Is there, if there's anything you wanna leave our listeners with, or if there's anywhere they can look to get more educated on this topic, any final thoughts from you?
1: Sure, about a month ago, we pulled together a symposium at the Ohio State University where we brought together an intersectional group of experts from science, from public health, from criminal justice, to talk about the unintended consequences of class-wide scheduling. So if you Google OSU and class-wide scheduling, you'll probably get the website. And that website has all of the recordings from the conference, along with some relevant materials. And the Drug Policy Alliance has been doing a lot of advocacy in this space. If you look at their website, you can probably find information there, too, relating to the letters that have been led.
0: Okay, well, thank you. Again, listeners, we were speaking with Patricia Richmond, National Sentencing Resource Council for Federal Public and Community Defenders. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.